The Grand Chessboard by Zbigniew Brzezinski Chapter 3 The Democratic Bridgehead Europe is America's natural ally. It shares the same values, partakes, in the main, of the same religious heritage, practices the same democratic politics, and is the original homeland of a large majority of Americans. By pioneering in the integration of nation-states into a shared, supranational economic and eventually political union, Europe is also pointing the way toward larger forms of post-national organization, beyond the narrow visions and the destructive passions of the age of nationalism. It is already the most multilateral organized region of the world. See chart on page 58. Success in its political unification would create a single entity of about 400 million people, living under a democratic roof and enjoying a standard of living comparable to that of the United States. Such a Europe would inevitably be a global power. Europe also serves as the springboard for the progressive expansion of democracy deeper into Eurasia. Europe's expansion eastward would consolidate the democratic victory of the 1990s. It would match on the political and economic plane the essential civilizational scope of Europe, what has been called the Petrine Europe, as defined by Europe's ancient and common religious heritage, derived from Western Rite Christianity. Such a Europe once existed, long before the age of nationalism and even longer before the recent division of Europe into its American and Soviet-dominated halves. Such a larger Europe would be able to exercise a magnetic attraction on the states located even farther east, building a network of ties with Ukraine, Belarus, and Russia, drawing them into increasingly binding cooperation while proselytizing common democratic principles. Eventually, such a Europe could become one of the vital pillars of an American-sponsored, larger Eurasian structure of security and cooperation. But first of all, Europe is America's essential geopolitical bridgehead on the Eurasian continent. America's geostrategic stake in Europe is enormous. Unlike America's link with Japan, the Atlantic Alliance entrenches American political influence and military power directly on the Eurasian mainland. At this stage of American-European relations, with the allied European nations still highly dependent on the United States' security protection, any expansion in the scope of Europe becomes automatically an expansion in the scope of direct U.S. influence as well. Conversely, without close transatlantic ties, America's primacy in Eurasia promptly fades away. United States' control over the Atlantic Ocean and the ability to project influence and power deeper into Eurasia would be severely circumscribed. The problem, however, is that a truly European Europe, as such, does not exist. It is a vision, a concept, and a goal, but it is not yet reality. Western Europe is already a common market, but it is still far from being a single political entity. A political Europe has yet to emerge. The crisis in Bosnia offered a painful proof of Europe's continued absence, if proof were still needed. The brutal fact is that Western Europe, and increasingly also Central Europe, remains largely an American protectorate, 
with its allied states reminiscent of ancient vassals and tributaries. This is not a healthy condition, either for America or for the European nations. Matters are made worse by a more pervasive decline in Europe's internal vitality. Both the legitimacy of the existing socio-economic system and even the surfacing sense of European identity appear to be vulnerable. In a number of European states, one can detect a crisis of confidence and a loss of creative momentum, as well as an inward perspective that is both isolationist and escapist from the larger dilemmas of the world. It is not clear whether most Europeans even want Europe to be a major power and whether they are prepared to do what is needed for it to become one. Even residual European anti-Americanism, currently quite weak, is curiously cynical. The Europeans deplore American hegemony, but take comfort in being sheltered by it. The political momentum of Europe's unification was once driven by three main impulses. The memories of the destructive two world wars, the desire for economic recovery, and the insecurity granted by the Soviet threat. By the mid-90s, however, these impulses had faded. Economic recovery, by and large, has been achieved. If anything, the problem Europe increasingly faces is that of an excessively burdensome welfare system that is sapping its economic vitality, while the passionate resistance to any reform by special interests is diverting European political attention inward. The Soviet threat has disappeared. While the desire of some Europeans to gain independence from American tutelage has not translated into a compelling impulse for continental unification. The European cause has been increasingly sustained by the bureaucratic momentum generated by the large institutional machinery created by the European community and its successor, the European Union. The idea of unity still enjoys significant popular support, but it tends to be lukewarm lacking in passion and a sense of mission. In general, the Western Europe of today conveys the impression of a troubled, unfocused, comfortable, yet socially uneasy set of societies, not partaking of any larger vision. European unification is increasingly a process and not a cause. Still, the political elites of two leading European nations, France and Germany, remain largely committed to the goal of shaping and defining a Europe that would truly be Europe. They are thus Europe's principal architects. Working together, they could construct a Europe worthy of its past and of its potential. But each is committed to a somewhat different vision and design, and neither is strong enough to prevail by itself. This condition creates for the United States a special opportunity for decisive intervention. It necessitates American engagement on behalf of Europe's unity, for otherwise unification could grind to a halt and then gradually even be undone. But any effective American involvement in Europe's construction has to be guided by clarity in American thinking regarding what kind of Europe America prefers and is ready to promote, an equal partner or junior ally, and regarding the eventual scope of both the European Union and NATO. It also requires careful management of Europe's two principal architects. Grandeur and Redemption France seeks reincarnation as Europe. Germany hopes for redemption through Europe.
These varying motivations go a long way toward explaining and defining the substance of the alternative French and German designs for Europe. For France, Europe is the means for regaining France's past greatness. Even before World War II, serious French thinkers on international affairs already worried about the progressive decline of Europe's centrality in world affairs. During the several decades of the Cold War, that worry turned into resentment over the Anglo-Saxon domination of the West, not to speak of contempt for the related Americanization of Western culture. The creation of a genuine Europe, in Charles de Gaulle's words, from the Atlantic to the Urals, was to remedy that deplorable state of affairs. And such a Europe, since it would be led by Paris, would simultaneously regain for France the grandeur that the French still feel remains their nation's special destiny. For Germany, a commitment to Europe is the basis for national redemption, while an intimate connection to America is central to its security. Accordingly, a Europe more assertively independent of America is not a viable option. For Germany, redemption plus security equal Europe plus America. That formula defines Germany's posture and policy, making Germany simultaneously Europe's truly good citizen and America's strongest European supporter. Germany sees in its fervent commitment to Europe a historical cleansing, a restoration of its moral and political credentials. By redeeming itself through Europe, Germany is restoring its own greatness while gaining a mission that would not automatically mobilize European resentments and fear against Germany. If Germans seek the German national interest, that runs the risk of alienating other Europeans. If Germans promote Europe's common interest, that garners European support and respect. On the central issue of the Cold War, France was a loyal, dedicated, and determined ally. It stood shoulder to shoulder with America when the chips were down. Whether during the two Berlin blockades or during the Cuban Missile Crisis, there was no doubt about French steadfastness. But France's support for NATO was tempered by a simultaneous French desire to assert a separate French political identity and to preserve for France its essential freedom of action, especially on matters that pertained to France's global status or to the future of Europe. There is an element of delusional obsession in the French political elite's preoccupation with the notion that France is still a global power. When Prime Minister Alain Juppé, echoing his predecessors, declared to the National Assembly in May 1995 that, quote, France can and must assert its vocation as a world power, unquote, the gathering broke out into spontaneous applause. The French insistence on the development of its own nuclear deterrent was motivated largely by the view that France would thereby enhance its own freedom of action and at the same time gain the capacity to influence American life and death decisions regarding the security of the Western alliance as a whole. It was not vis-à-vis -vis the Soviet Union that France sought to upgrade its status, for the French nuclear deterrent had, at the very best, only a marginal impact on Soviet war-making capabilities. Paris felt instead that its own nuclear weapons would give France a role in the Cold War's top-level and most dangerous decision-making processes. In French thinking, the possession of nuclear weapons fortified France's claim to being a global power.
of having a voice that had to be respected worldwide. It tangibly reinforced France's position as one of the five veto-wielding UN Security Council members. All five also nuclear powers. In the French perspective, the British nuclear deterrent was simply an extension of the American, especially given the British commitment to the special relationship and the British abstention from the effort to construct an independent Europe. That the French nuclear program significantly benefited from covert U.S. assistance was, to the French, of no consequence for France's strategic calculus. The French nuclear deterrent also consolidated, in the French mindset, France's commanding position as the leading continental power, the only truly European state so endowed. France's global ambitions were also expressed through its determined efforts to sustain a special security role in most of the Francophone African countries. Despite the loss, after prolonged combat of Vietnam and Algeria and the abandonment of a wider empire, that security mission, as well as continued French control over scattered Pacific islands, which have provided the venue for controversial French atomic tests, has reinforced the conviction of the French elite that France, indeed, still has a global role to play, despite the reality of being essentially a middle-rank post-imperial European power. All of the foregoing has sustained as well as motivated France's claim to the mantle of European leadership. While Britain, self-marginalized and essentially an appendage to the United States' power, and with Germany divided for much of the Cold War and still handicapped by its 20th century history, France could seize the idea of Europe, identify itself with it, and usurp it as identical with France's conception of itself. The country that first invented the idea of the sovereign nation-state and made nationalism into a civic religion thus found it quite natural to see itself with the same emotional commitment that was once invested in la partie as the embodiment of an independent but united Europe. The grand Europe of French-led Europe would then be France's as well. This special vocation, generated by a deeply felt sense of historical destiny and fortified by a unique cultural pride, has major policy implications. The key geopolitical space that France had to keep within its orbit of influence, or at least prevent from being dominated by a more powerful state than itself, could be drawn on the map in the form of a semicircle. It includes the Iberian Peninsula, the northern shore of the western Mediterranean, and Germany up to east-central Europe. See map on page 64. That is not only the minimal radius of French security, it is also the essential zone of French political interest. Only with the support of the southern states assured, and with Germany's backing guaranteed, can the goal of constructing a unified and independent Europe, led by France, be effectively pursued. And obviously, within that geopolitical orbit, the increasingly powerful Germany is bound to be the most difficult to manage. In the French vision, the central goal of a united and independent Europe can be achieved by combining the unification of Europe under French leadership with the simultaneous but gradual diminution of the American primacy on the continent. But if France is to shape Europe's future, it must both engage and shackle Germany, while also seeking, step by step, 
to strip Washington of its political leadership in European affairs. The resulting key policy dilemmas for France are essentially twofold. How to preserve the American security commitment to Europe, which France recognizes as still essential, while steadily reducing the American presence, and how to sustain Franco-German partnership as the combined political-economic engine of European unification, while precluding German leadership in Europe. If France were truly a global power, the resolution of these dilemmas and the pursuit of France's central goal might not be difficult. None of the European states, save Germany, are endowed with the same ambition or driven by the same sense of mission. Even Germany could perhaps be seduced into acceptance of French leadership in a united but independent of America, Europe but only if it felt that France was in fact a global power and could thus provide Europe with security that Germany cannot, but America does. Germany, however, knows the real limits of French power. France is much weaker than Germany economically, while its military establishment, as the Gulf War of 1991 showed, is not very competent. It is good enough to squash internal coups in satellite African states but it can neither protect Europe nor project significant power far from Europe. France is no more or less than a middle-rank European power. Accordingly, in order to construct Europe, Germany has been willing to appropriate French pride. But in order to keep Europe truly secure, it has not been willing to follow French leadership blindly. It has continued to insist on a central role in European security for America. That reality, painful for French self-esteem, emerged more clearly after Germany's reunification. Until then, the Franco-German reconciliation did have the appearance of French political leadership riding comfortably on German economic dynamism. That perception actually suited both parties. It mitigated the traditional European fears of Germany, and it had the effect of fortifying and gratifying French illusions by generating the impression that the construction of Europe was led by France, backed by an economically dynamic West Germany. Franco-German reconciliation, even with its misconceptions, was nonetheless a positive development for Europe, and its importance cannot be overstated. It has provided the crucial foundation for all the progress so far achieved in Europe's difficult process of unification. Thus, it was also fully compatible with American interests and in keeping with the long-standing American commitment to the promotion of transnational cooperation in Europe. A breakdown of Franco-German cooperation would be a fatal setback for Europe and a disaster for America's position in Europe. Tacit American support made it possible for France and Germany to push the process of Europe's unification forward. Germany's reunification, moreover, increased the incentive for the French to lock Germany into a binding European framework. Thus, on December 6, 1990, the French President and the German Chancellor committed themselves to the goal of a federal Europe, and ten days later, the Rome Intergovernmental Conference on Political Union issued, British reservations notwithstanding, a clear mandate to the twelve foreign ministers of the European community to prepare a draft treaty on political union. However, Germany's reunification also dramatically changed the real parameters of European politics. It was simultaneously a geopolitical defeat for Russia and for France. 
United Germany not only ceased to be a political junior partner of France, but it automatically became the undisputed prime power in Western Europe, and even a partial global power, especially through its major financial contributions to the support of the key international institutions. The new reality bred some mutual disenchantment in the Franco-German relationship, for Germany was now able and willing to articulate and openly promote its own vision of a future Europe, still as France's partner, but no longer as its protégé. For France, the resulting diminished political leverage dictated several policy consequences. France somehow had to regain greater influence within NATO, from which it had largely abstained as a protest against U.S. domination, while also compensating for its relative weakness through greater diplomatic maneuver. Returning to NATO might enable France to influence America more. Occasional flirtation with Moscow or London might generate pressure from the outside on America as well as on Germany. Consequently, as part of its policy of maneuver, rather than contestation, France returned to NATO's command structure. By 1994, France was again a de facto active participant in NATO's political and military decision-making. By late 1995, the French foreign and defense ministers were again regular attendees at alliance sessions. But at a price. Once fully inside, they reaffirmed their determination to reform the alliance's structure in order to make for greater balance between its American leadership and its European participation. They wanted a higher profile and a bigger role for a collective European component. The French foreign minister, Hervé de Chartet, stated in a speech on April 8, 1996, For France, the basic goal of the reproachment is to assert a European identity within the alliance that is operationally credible and politically visible. At the same time, Paris was quite prepared to exploit tactically its traditional links with Russia to constrain America's European policy and to resuscitate, whenever expedient, the old Franco-British Entente to offset Germany's growing European primacy. The French foreign minister came close to saying so explicitly in August 1996 when he declared that if France wants to play an international role, it stands to benefit from the existence of a strong Russia from helping it to reaffirm itself as a major power, prompting the Russian foreign minister to reciprocate by stating that, of all the world leaders, the French are the closest to having constructive attitudes in their relations with Russia. France's initially lukewarm support for NATO's eastward expansion, indeed a barely suppressed skepticism regarding its desirability, was thus partially a tactic designed to gain leverage in dealing with the United States. Precisely because America and Germany were the chief proponent of NATO expansion, it suited France to play cool, to go along reticently, to voice concern regarding the political impact of that initiative on Russia, and to act as Europe's most sensitive interlocutor with Moscow. To some Central Europeans, it appeared that the French even conveyed the impression that they were not averse to a Russian sphere of influence in Eastern Europe. The Russian card thus not only balanced America and conveyed a non-too-subtle message to Germany, but it also increased the pressure on the United States to consider favorably French proposals for NATO reform. Ultimately, 
NATO expansion will require unanimity among the alliance's 16 members. Paris knew that its acquiescence was not only vital for the unanimity, but that France's actual support was needed to avoid obstruction from other alliance members. Thus, it made no secret of the French intention to make support for NATO expansion a hostage to America's eventually satisfying the French determination to alter both the balance of power within the alliance and its fundamental organization. France was at first similarly tepid in its support for the eastward expansion of the European Union. Here the lead was taken largely by Germany, with American support but without the same degree of U.S. engagement as in the case of NATO expansion. Even though in NATO, France tended to argue that the EU's expansion would provide a more suitable umbrella for the former communist states, as soon as Germany started pressing for the more rapid enlargement of the EU to include Central Europe, France began to raise technical concerns and also to demand that the EU pay equal attention to Europe's exposed Mediterranean southern flank. These differences emerged as early as the November 1994 Franco-German summit. French emphasis on the latter issue also had the effect of gaining for France the support of NATO's southern members, thereby maximizing France's overall bargaining power. But the cost was a widening gap in the respective geopolitical visions of Europe held by France and Germany. A gap only partially narrowed by France's belated endorsement in the second half of 1996 of Poland's ascension to both NATO and the EU. That gap was inevitable, given the changing historical context. Ever since the end of World War II, democratic Germany had recognized that Franco-German reconciliation was required to build a European community within the western half of divided Europe. That reconciliation was also central to Germany's historical rehabilitation. Hence, the acceptance of French leadership was a fair price to pay. At the same time, the continued Soviet threat to a vulnerable West Germany made loyalty to America the essential precondition for survival. And even the French recognized that. But after the Soviet collapse, to build a larger and more united Europe, subordination to France was neither necessary nor propitious. An equal Franco-German partnership, with the reunified Germany in fact now being the stronger partner, was more than a fair deal for Paris. Hence, the French would simply have to accept Germany's preference for a primary security link with its transatlantic ally and protector. With the end of the Cold War, that link assumed new importance for Germany. In the past, it had sheltered Germany from an external but very proximate threat and was the necessary precondition for the eventual reunification of the country. With the Soviet Union gone and Germany reunified, the link to America now provided the umbrella under which Germany could more openly assume a leadership role in Central Europe without simultaneously threatening its neighbors. The American connection provided more than the certificate of good behavior it reassured Germany's neighbors that a close relationship with Germany also meant a close relationship with America. All of that made it easier for Germany to define more openly its own geopolitical priorities. Germany, safely anchored in Europe and rendered harmless but secure by the visible American military presence, could now promote the assimilation of the newly freed Central Europe into the European structures. 
it would not be the old Mitteleuropa of German imperialism, but a more benign community of economic renewal stimulated by German investments and trade, with Germany also acting as the sponsor of the eventually formal inclusion of the new Mitteleuropa in both the European Union and NATO. With the Franco-German alliance providing the vital platform for the assertion of a more decisive regional role, Germany no longer needed to be shy in asserting itself within an orbit of its special interest. On the map of Europe, the zone of German special interest could be sketched in the shape of an oblong. In the west, including of course France, and in the east, spanning the newly emancipated post-communist states of Central Europe, including the Baltic republics, embracing Ukraine and Belarus, and reaching, even into Russia, see map on page 64. In many respects, that zone corresponds to the historical radius of constructive German cultural influence, carved out in the pre-nationalist era by German urban and agricultural colonists in East Central Europe and in the Baltic Republics, all of whom were wiped out in the course of World War II. More important, the areas of special concern to the French, discussed earlier, and the Germans, when viewed together as in the map below, in effect define the western and eastern limits of Europe, while the overlap between them underlies the decisive geopolitical importance of the Franco-German connection as the vital core of Europe. The critical breakthrough for the more openly assertive German role in Central Europe was provided by the German-Polish reconciliation that occurred during the mid-90s. Despite some initial reluctance, the reunited Germany, with American prodding, did formally recognize as permanent the Ordenizer border with Poland, and that step in turn removed the single most important Polish reservation regarding a closer relationship with Germany. Following some further mutual gestures of goodwill and forgiveness, the relationship underwent a dramatic change. Not only did German-Polish trade literally explode, in 1995, Poland superseded Russia as Germany's largest trading partner in the East, but Germany became Poland's principal sponsor for membership in the EU and, together with the United States, in NATO. It is no exaggeration to say that by the middle of the decade, Polish-German reconciliation was assuming a geopolitical importance in Central Europe, matching the earlier impact on Western Europe of the Franco-German reconciliation. Through Poland, German influence could radiate northward into the Baltic states and eastward into Ukraine and Belarus. Moreover, the scope of the German-Polish reconciliation was somewhat widened by Poland's occasional inclusion in important Franco-German discussions regarding Europe's future. The so-called Weimar Triangle, named after the German city in which the first high-level trilateral Franco-German-Polish consultations, which subsequently became periodic, had taken place, created a potentially significant geopolitical axis on the European continent embracing some 180 million people from three nations with a highly defined sense of national identity. On the one hand, this further enhanced Germany's dominant role in Central Europe, but on the other hand, that role was somewhat balanced by the Franco-Polish participation in the three-way dialogue. 
and such was even more the case with the smaller Central European states, was eased by the very evident German commitment to the eastward expansion of Europe's key institutions. In so committing itself, Germany undertook a historical mission, much at variance with some rather deeply rooted Western European outlooks. In the latter perspective, events occurring east of Germany and Austria were perceived as somehow beyond the limits of concern to the real Europe. That attitude articulated in the early 18th century by Lord Bolingbroke, who argued that political violence in the east was of no consequence to the Western Europeans, refaced during the Munich crisis of 1938 and it made a tragic reappearance in the British and French attitudes during the conflict of the mid-1990s in Bosnia. It still lurks beneath the surface in the ongoing debates regarding the future of Europe. In contrast, the only real debate in Germany was whether NATO or the EU should be expanded first. The defense minister favored the former. The foreign minister advocated the latter with the net result that Germany became the undisputed apostle of a larger and more united Europe. The German Chancellor spoke of the year 2000 as the goal for the EU's first eastward enlargement, and the German Defense Minister was among the first to suggest that the fifth anniversary of NATO's founding was an appropriately symbolic date for the alliance's eastern expansion. Germany's conception of Europe's future thus differed from its principal European allies. The British proclaimed their preference for a larger Europe because they saw in enlargement the means for diluting Europe's unity. The French feared that enlargement would enhance Germany's role and hence favored more narrowly based integration. Germany stood for both and thus gained a standing in Central Europe all its own.